Let's return, brothers and sisters, one last time to the third chapter uh, of the book of Genesis. Continuing in our studies of this book of beginnings, let's come to the final portion of Genesis chapter 3. The text for this morning begins at verse 22. Let's begin reading at verse 20. This is where the account picks up immediately following the pronouncement of curses by God in response to Adam and Eve's sin. So we'll pick up our reading at verse 20 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam for his wife, garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had take, was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and seek God's blessing on his word. Know our Father that there is much of the blessing of the word read and preached that we can't measure, like the nourishment we receive from food, there's mystery in it for us. We pray that we might have discernible sense this morning that you are here, giving us life through your word. We pray that it might be to us sweet, and all that it holds is your word. Thankful for your blessings of the past, but we are now the holy way, greedy for more in this hour. So come, Holy Spirit, as you have. Speak to us the word of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The chapter 3 has been full of unthinkables, as we use that expression. And we come today to the last of them. It was unthinkable that the enemy of God would invade his holy temple garden, but that's exactly what he did. It was unthinkable that the children of God would choose to trust him rather than their father. And that too is exactly what's taken place. It was unthinkable that the act of one man would have such dramatic consequences for the whole of human history, indeed the whole of nature itself, and that's what we witnessed. It's unthinkable, 
if you think about it. But God's response to all of this would be anything other than wrath and fury, justice and severity. We've seen something other than that as well. The last of the unthinkables, I'll put this way. Our fallen first parents full of guilt and shame on the one hand for their treachery yet not without hope in the mercy of God, now before our eyes, being cast out of God's presence on the earth, even as Satan, their tempter, had been cast out of the presence of God in heaven. Unthinkable. Genesis 3 ends with exile from Eden. And brothers and sisters, except for the fact that it is ever so familiar a passage for almost all of us, it might come as a surprise ending. After all, it has come on the heels of a very hopeful moment. I read the two verses that were the subject of the sermon last Sunday just a moment ago. That's when Adam expresses his hope in the promise of God as he names his wife. And that's when God clothes his sinful children in the life of someone without sin, point her to the gospel. And it's on the heels of all of that mercy and faith and hope that the people we have come to love, all their tragedy, are banished from God's presence. Where's the mercy now? Where's the grace? It's certainly what Adam and Eve deserve. But is that all there is to be seen? This loss, paradise. Brothers and sisters, this passage has had some surprises for me. And there may be one or two for you. Uh, and they will be the kind of surprises that make this last of the unthinkables, not only more bearable, but actually something hopeful. So I have three things you'll not be surprised to consider in the text, and here's the first, taken from the first verse of our text. The tragedy of knowledge gained the wrong Way. Let's start there, of course, with verse 22. God is speaking of a great tragedy. We know this by now when he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, if all you had was that statement, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. It might sound like a good thing all by itself, but we know it's not that in the context. We know what this assessment is. It is the assessment of a great moral tragedy, and we know this because, of course, the forbidden tree, the one that was there in the garden that God said, you may not eat of it, was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was some kind of knowledge that could be gained from it. And when God says the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, we know he's making a statement about their disobedience. We also know that Satan had taken a hold of that. And as part of his temptation, 
of Eve, back in verse 5, he'd said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil, we saw that the master deceiver spins his lie with the threads of truth. Now as God looks at Adam, what he's done to himself, this is his definitive assessment. Now he's like one of us. He knows what we know. By the way, who is God talking to when he speaks this way? We've already seen something like this back in chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And we realize that because, inasmuch as God alone has the power to create, God must be talking to himself, or better, within himself. This is an early evidence in the scripture for plurality within the Godhead. We saw that back in chapter 1 as a hint at the Trinity. That may be all that we need to know to answer the question who God is talking to now in chapter 3. Though, in this case, it may not be possible to rule out that God is including, by now, the angelic host, the council of heaven, when he speaks this way. The angels of heaven were not creators. That's why we know they're not being referenced in chapter 1. But they could, by now, share with God a certain kind of knowledge of good and evil. They had, after all, witnessed a great rebellion, a great revolt within their own midst. And there had been some tempted and fallen and others who had stood in any case, the bigger question than who God is talking to is why is this godlike knowledge such a tragedy? Adam was created to be like God. And part of the image of God, part of being in his likeness is knowledge, knowledge that God himself gives to those who are made in his image, capable of knowing as he knows. If it's good for God to know what he knows, why is it bad for Adam to know what God knows? Just say, I, I think there's much that's mysterious here. The way God is speaking, it's a tragedy that they are now like us. Knowing good and evil, but we're on safe ground to say this much. God, in his omniscience, is able to know all things exhaustively from the good to the evil apart from sin in himself. That's true of God. But Adam, at least at this stage in his life, was not able to know evil without partaking of evil. Adam had acquired this ability to know both good and evil the wrong way. Uh, maybe this illustration will be helpful. Uh, folks, you know this well. There are wicked things in the world that mature adults have become aware of in necessary and appropriate ways. And in that sense, they're growing in knowledge of both good and evil. In their childhood, such mature adults would have had no capacity to 
comprehend evil in the abstract, as we say it, and if they were, as a child, to acquire knowledge of this evil, it would have to come about through personal experience of it. By being drawn into it, say, through the internet. Or being forced to participate in it as children. By wicked men. Thinking of Israeli children taken hostage by Hamas militants, acquiring through that experience the knowledge of good and evil, or that matter, Palestinian children living among the ruins of their lives. Uh, folks, some scholars have a theory about what might have happened. We've had this occur along the way in this study. What might have happened if Adam had not taken of the tree of a knowledge of good and evil and fallen into sin. What might have happened? And there are theories in various ways about what might have happened. And one has become more plausible to me the more I've thought about it. Some have surmised that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden to Adam only for a season. You remember that uh, there's widespread consensus. Adam was in a season of testing. This was not a time of probation, as it's called by theologians. It would have lasted forever. And so some have concluded, had Adam successfully passed the test, God would have lifted, eventually, his prohibition against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He would have been, at that point, spiritually mature enough to acquire this knowledge without sin. He would have attained to greater God-likeness the right way by waiting on God. And that what might have been, both trees would have then eventually become a source of blessing for Adam. But of course, we know Adam would not wait. He was like a disobedient child. He went behind his parents' back. He acquired this true knowledge Good and evil, the most tragic of ways. I find that a very plausible what might have happened theory, but this much is certain, brothers and sisters, the added knowledge Adam now has, has come about in rebellion against God. That's exactly what Satan wanted for Adam. He wanted knowledge for him, true knowledge, the wrong way. So as we leave this chapter that's full of the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve, this is what I want us to remember, among other things. So much of the sin of mankind comes precisely this way, seeking knowledge the wrong way. Isn't that what? The prodigal son and Jesus' parable is doing. He wants to know certain things. He wants to go far from the Father in order to know. What is it like to be free? What is it like to be happy? What is it like to have sex? What is it like to have a little drug experimentation? What is the world like? All that it holds, that's real knowledge. 
And folks, God is all about truth and knowledge for himself, of course, but for his children as well. But gauge the right way. It's been pointed out that even in the text, even in the beginning uh, verses of chapter 3, Adam and Eve were already on a journey learning about good and evil even before they fell. Because, of course, Adam, or rather Eve, is being confronted by evil incarnate. She's hearing the voice of evil. There was no sin in being tempted by Satan. There was a way to learn the difference between good and evil apart from disobedience. The unfallen angels had taken that path. So all knowledge in a certain sense makes one more godlike, but the way you acquire it, well, that's the tragedy. Let me give you a prayer. Before I move on, let me give you a prayer that would be a fitting prayer in the wake of Genesis 3 and all we've learned from it. Lord, I want to know only what you want me to know. Lord, I'm content to have that knowledge only when and in the way you ordain. Lord, there is a kind of knowledge I never want to have. Here's your prayer. In the wake of Genesis 3, in light of the assessment that God gives in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That's the tragedy of knowledge gained the wrong way. Secondly, let's look at the mercy of deliverance from an unending death. Perhaps you noticed I was reading. <clears throat> the ending of verse 22 seems a bit odd. God is speaking and he seems to break off in mid-thought. Let me read it again. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever in your Bibles, the quotations end right there. And then Moses picks up with his narrative. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. It's a strange construction, and it's uh, obvious just in the reading of it, and it's all very intentional. There's a word for it I've learned. Language experts call this an elliptical form. Uh, that won't be on the quiz, but uh, this is what one of them uh, ca uh, captures, is trying to explain what an elliptical form is. It's a sudden breaking off of a thought in the middle of a sentence as though the speaker were unwilling or unable to continue. In other words... This is a depiction of strong feelings in God. This is his final response to Adam's sin. 
and he is full of emotions such that he stops mid-sentence what he's saying and acts. Now, the million-dollar question is what kind of emotion is it being depicted in God? Clearly, there's a zeal to prevent Adam from eating from the tree of life. Everything that follows uh, is directed at preventing him from eating from the tree of life. He goes on, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. That's where it stops. But why is God so zealous to keep Adam from eating of the tree of life? There's two possible explanations. The first, just on the face of it, it could seem that God is zealous to prevent Adam from undoing the curse. So in this view, God had promised Adam that if he ate of the forbidden fruit, he would die. Yet, if Adam is able to turn and eat from the tree of life, he would not die. So God, in justice, is ensuring that Adam will, in fact, suffer the penalty for his sin that he's just pronounced. So that's one way of understanding the emotion that God is registering. And I think, as I look back, growing up as a child, with this story, very familiar, I thought of the tree of life serving as a kind of anti-venom. So Adam had been poisoned by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had the poison in him, and there's a, an antidote that's available to him, and he will recognize that, and he will seek that, and God is putting it out of his reach. He's saying, no, you will die. So in this view, the emotion that's registering with God is to uphold justice. It's to carry out punishment on Adam. Now, there is zeal for God's justice throughout Genesis 3, to be sure. But, brothers and sisters, I think there's good reason to think that's not what's animating God here. First of all, my uh, uh, venom, anti-venom paradigm uh, is not actually how the trees are presented to us in our text. One was God's appointed source of life, given from the beginning for Adam to enjoy. And I said to you as we first... Uh, encounter this tree, we have every reason to think that Adam would have enjoyed that fruit from the start. He, it was pointed out to him. It was named for him. He was said, you may eat from it. The other tree was God's appointed source of a certain kind of knowledge. Forbidden, at least for a time. When they ate of that tree, they gained knowledge. Their eyes were opened. You remember how it's put. They knew good and evil in a tragic way. The trees produced edible fruit. They served the way all food does as nourishment of our bodies over time. And so they're presented to us as those that would, from the ongoing eating of them, impart life and knowledge. So listen carefully to a second understanding of what it is that's animating God in our text. 
Had Adam and Eve obeyed God, the tree of life would have been a means forever of sustaining them in the life they had first been given of happiness and holiness and innocence. Since Adam and Eve have disobeyed, the tree of life would have become for them a means of sustaining them in the kind of life they had fallen into through sin. We've called it life under the curse. Uh, my imagination is very capable of seeing fallen Adam, fallen Eve, still subject to the temptations that they had already fallen to, if allowed to remain in the garden, wanting to eat of both trees, and thereby growing more deeply knowledgeable of good and evil the wrong way. At the same time, being sustained in that condition, you could call it a kind of living death, by means of the tree of life. Now, that second understanding of the text is as old as the church fathers. I quote from one from the fourth century. Therefore, lest Adam and Eve, after having eaten of this tree, live forever and remain in eternal lives of suffering, God forbade them to eat. Do you see how radically different this second view is? In this view, God's zeal, that strong emotion that causes him to break off what he's saying and just act to do something, not to ensure that Adam falls into the curse, that's a done deal. It's to preserve Adam from an endless existence under the curse. I've been aware of this second interpretation for some time and uh, folks, it's become more and more compelling to me as I have worked my way through this chapter because we have seen, haven't we, God's heart of mercy in the midst of all the justice he's revealing. The way he first approaches Adam and Eve, where are you? The way he speaks to them and uh, speaks in their hearing of what he'll do to their enemy, it's mercy. The way he's just clothed them like a father with his children. Again, I read that. It's just happened. That wonderful picture of gospel grace to come has just happened when God gets worked up in response to something. Brothers and sisters, I think this elliptical form God breaking off mid-sentence in order to do something. It's something you've seen a thousand times in a parent, a parent who's talking to you, and all of a sudden, in the middle of their, their saying, sees their child in some danger, stops what he's saying, goes, delivers, rescues, child in danger. Here's how one more modern commentator puts it. It's as if Yahweh becomes choked up when assessing man's action and contemplating his danger while remaining within reach of the second sacramental tree, moved with strong emotions, he quickly carries out the solution rather than stating it. So what is so stirring to God, it's that Adam's in danger. He's going to seek redemption in this life. 
and all the brokenness that sin has brought. John Murray puts it this way, in Adam's expulsion, we should find, therefore, a signal manifestation of grace. God shielded Adam from the sin that would have put him outside the sphere of redemption. I ask you just to consider, if the fountain of youth were real, Cortez had found it. Do I have that right? If that legend actually had reality, if there was some kind of water that you could drink that would preserve you in this life forever and ever and ever. I think every one of us would take our Yetis and go find some. We'd want it. We'd want to live forever. Unless we consider that this life, under the curse, forever? In comparison to what God has in store for us. In comparison, that would be hell. So, God intervenes. And he does so because the way to life now is going to be through death. It's going to be through the death of the seed of Eve. It's going to be through the death of all of us as we're united to him in his death. You might say that there's mercy in the house, not only judgment. So, brothers and sisters, as we move forward in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see death doing two kinds of things. We're going to see a lot of death. Death will cut short the lives of faithful, wise, heroic, and Righteous men. It will also cut short the lives of wicked men, laying low the proud, the wicked, and the rebellious. So which is it? Is death judgment? Is it mercy? It's both. Indeed, God is merciful and intervenes to spare Adam and all of his children from an endless existence under the curse. That's what I'm calling the mercy of deliverance from an unending death. Now let's turn to the hope. Number three, the hope of a paradise lost being one day regained. Now I admit I'm looking at this passage, the ending of chapter three, in the light of the full testimony of God's word. But we're going to look closely at what God says. And we're going to see hints of what is going to come to be so unfolded dramatically in the rest of the pages of Scripture. We're going to see some of those hints already there at the ending of Genesis chapter 3. So, as we continue in our text, and God has moved to action, verse 23 and following, we see him do three things. They're increasingly painful words that are used. God sent Adam out of the garden. God drove Adam out of the garden. God barred Adam from re-entering the garden. So we understand from that first, it's found in verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, that God had ordered Adam. 
to leave. That word for sent will show up again in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham's lies, in this case about his wife, who's not actually his sister, are found out, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So that's the word. He is ordered to leave. But why would he have to be ordered? He certainly wouldn't leave of his own initiative. He'd have to be told. Stronger than that. Verse 24, we're told God forces Adam and Eve to do what they would otherwise have been loath to do. He drove out the man. Uh, this is the same word that's used uh, in the days of Joshua to describe what Israel is going to do with the nations who are dwelling in Canaan. They're going to be driven out in front of them. It's a word that calls for or that brings to mind force, even violence. Makes us mindful that everything in Adam would have recoiled at the thought of leaving this place where God's presence was, where he'd enjoyed fellowship with God, but God leaves him no choice. He forces him to leave. From those final words, we gather that God knows Adam will be desperate to return. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Apparently, there's only one way into the garden. You gathered that, didn't you? There's one entrance. It's on the east side of the garden. And that's where God places these angelic sentries. We haven't met angels yet. This is their first appearance not counting the serpent that we have come to understand to be a fallen angel. Cherubim are introduced to us here. The cherubim have been called by someone the warrior class of the angels. This one's accompanied by that flaming sword, some kind of supernatural and fearful show of force. And he is clearly a sentry barring all entrance to the garden and thus to the tree that's there in the center of the garden. Why would he be there? Because fallen man will be desperate in seeking to re-enter. God's making clear to Adam, you may not return. Banished. But brothers and sisters, not quite, not anything like the banishment from heaven to hell the angels had fallen under. Matthew Henry compares these two banishments and he says in his way of turning a phrase, he was sent to a place of toil, not torment, to the ground, not to the grave, to the workhouse, not prison house, to hold the plow, not to drag the chain. Actually, brothers and sisters, we should recognize that Adam and Eve have now a whole world to occupy, one that was created good, though now fallen. There's mercy even in their exile, but as sinful creatures, 
They can't live in the very presence of God anymore. That's the penalty. That's the price. Defiling God's holy place. These things are clear. But here's the question that I want to pose to you now, which I think and seek an answer so much comfort. Why didn't God simply, if you will, cut down the tree? Why doesn't he simply unmake the garden? Why does he post a century? Why does he leave it all just there, under lock and key, if you will? Why does Genesis 3 leave us with this place called paradise that's there, but you can't go in? Well, brothers and sisters, what the rest of Scripture will make wonderfully clear is because though this paradise is lost, it's not lost forever. God's going to make a way for man to re-enter the garden. He's going to make a way for him to safely pass the flaming sword. He's going to make a way for man to actually eat again of the tree of life. God has a plan for removing the sin that makes it impossible to dwell with God in his own presence. He has a plan for returning the exiles home. Now, folks, I just want you to, for a minute, just to savor the next few things I'm going to say. You know they're part of the scriptures as a whole will only be representative. I opened up for you uh, many months ago now that those who were first hearing what Moses is saying in these opening chapters of Genesis would have realized, it would have dawned on them, Moses is taking us back. He's taking us back to the Holy Land, the Garden of God, the place that's flowing with milk and honey. God's promises to Father Abraham are putting our exile in reverse. They would have first recognized that, and they would have had right to expect, as God himself says later in the Torah, I will walk among you in the land of Canaan. That's why this cherubim that you have introduced to you for the first time in Genesis chapter 3 makes an appearance there sewn into the veil of the temple, that veil that keeps the holy of holies separate from every other part. You remember that it contains images of cherubim and you know that there's another image too actually there in the holy of holies. They're made of gold. They guard the ark of the covenant. They're standing guard as this cherubim was, against all who are unholy from entering into God's presence. But in a new temple that is wholly devoted to making a way for sinners to approach God again through blood, through the substitute offered in the courtyard whose lifeblood is sprinkled by the representative of the people. That's why the veil of that temple that had the images of the cherubim was torn in two. The moment of our Lord's death, you might say the cherubim were being relieved of duty. They were no longer called by God to keep men from God's presence because through the seed, of the woman, 
a way had been made. That's why our pictures of heaven, the paradise to come, include this tree that God has for now barred Adam from eating. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This is paradise restored even to sinners. I think I've commented on this before, but uh, we don't know in terms of the actual real estate of the Garden of Eden. We don't know what comes of that real estate, quite literally and physically. Presumably with Adam failing to tend it, it ceases to be the garden it first was. And Presumably with the waters of the flood, it would have been altered in dramatic ways. But I'm just pointing out that as Genesis 3 concludes, the Garden of Eden remains right where God put it. It's man who's sent from it. That holy place of God, the place where God on earth met with his people is guarded by the warrior angels with the tree of life in its center. It's still there. Being preserved for the time God's plan of redemption will make it possible to enter into that place of God's presence the way you guys just walked in here today. Just stroll right in. No barriers. God has come. and He's met with you here. This is what I'm calling the hope of a paradise lost being one day regained. Credit to Milton for some of the terms that I've been using just now. Some of you will know John Milton puts a brave face on Adam and Eve in his final scene as they are sent from the garden into the world. He supposes the angel has given him them a prophecy of all that's to come, and so they have the full knowledge of what God is going to do, and so they leave with a tear or two, and yet with hope and a brave face. Some of our Renaissance artists are not convinced. Perhaps some of the images will come to your minds of Adam and Eve, face their hands wailing. Perhaps the truth is somewhere in between those pictures. Never forget. The reversal of that scene becomes the theme of the rest of human history. Becomes the theme of the Bible. One of our church fathers, the Venerable Bede, says it this way. Where the one went out with his wife, having been conquered by his enemy. 
bear the other might return with his spouse, namely the church of the Spirit, as a conqueror over his enemies. Indeed, brothers and sisters, the paradise that's been exited by Adam has been re-entered by Adam's son. The promised seed of the woman has regained the paradise that was lost. And that is why our Savior says to every one of his dying saints, in the last moments of this day, you will be reigning in paradise. Amen. Let's pray together. So, our Father, we enter into the tragedy of these things. We groan under the exile that not only your justice, but your mercy imposed on all of us sons of Adam. But not without hope. Indeed, with the knowledge that you have given to us especially in and through your Son and his great accomplishment. We recognize what a glorious plan you've had from the foundations of the earth. Paradise regained will be an all the more glorious thing to experience for its having been lost having been regained at such a price. And so, Lord, we pray, grant us hope and faith and earnest obedience and take us home. Take us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.